Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Yeah. Listen, let me show you how we kicking it. Lacing up my cleats to chase a goal. Being like Beckham, but we never fold. Let me show you how we kicking it. Baby, you ain't working how we working. Scoring like a 10 up on my jersey. Let me show you how we kicking it. Stay up in the field, we going hard. Pray we never see a yellow card. Let me show you how we kicking it. So if your feet can plant it to the ground, we'll go ahead and put your hands down. Let me show you how we kicking it. What is up, you guys? My name is Jess Lazo, and you are kicking it with me on the Women's College Soccer Podcast, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? Welcome to episode 17 of the podcast and part two of the importance behind mental health in sports. So just last week, I spoke with licensed clinical professional counselor and high-performance coach Holly Katz on the ongoing struggle of mental health in sports. And because this topic is so important, I wanted to make this into a two-part series where you're able to hear perspectives from different sports psychologist professionals. Typically, athletes have a hard time reaching their peak performance because they are faced with mental roadblocks. Some slumps are easier to climb out of than others, but many individuals including myself, have experienced difficulty maintaining a consistent positive mindset and an overall mental toughness. So I wanted to bring someone on the show who is extremely knowledgeable about this topic and has helped thousands of athletes, coaches, and parents overcome these psychological battles. Founder and president of the International Mental Game Coaching Association and one of the most successful performance psychology consultants to a wide variety of college and professional athletes, including 25 world and national teams, 11 international and Olympic teams, and 32 professional sports teams. I like to welcome Bill Cole on to the show today. Thank you so much for coming on. Great to be here, Jessica. Really, uh, really happy to be speaking with you today. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear all your insights about this topic. Great. When you first contacted me, I was really interested because you talked about mental toughness, facing adversity, how to overcome athletic hardships, and then building mental strength, which is kind of a really common package that uh, sports psychologists work with and really a regular everyday kind of a theme. So really uh, enjoyed the questions you sent me. Great. So um, the first question that I sent you and I'm excited to talk about is just in general, why do you think mental health is so important in reaching your goals? Well, athletics is a very interesting arena where um, someone can go through their career, uh, maybe not being very well balanced in life, maybe having some difficult mental health issues, but they can still excel. And uh, in some ways, elite sports, unfortunately, can foster some of those troubles because uh, elite coaches and teams want performers uh, mainly. Uh, I was a D1 head coach, Cal State Fullerton, San Jose State, and uh, understand the coaching world well, where they, they bring in the horses to get the job done. They want the bodies that can do it. Now, hopefully they're really good performers in the classroom. They're good people, we hope. And maybe way down the list is like, oh, but I don't want to deal with their mental health issues, really, or their family problems or this or that. They need to perform for us. That's why we gave them the scholarship. So there's kind of this dark side of, uh, let's say, kids sports, youth elite sports, and then college sports, and then pro. So, you know, there's an old expression that uh, college coaches use uh, when they are talking about their athletes. What have you done for me lately? And athletes don't exactly understand that. The other one is, uh, you see that guy out on the basketball court running around, he's got my paycheck in his hip pocket. So mainly, I shouldn't say mainly, but there's a, a good constellation of coaches that view their athletes as objects or things, and the mental health is fairly low down. I can tell you some stories I've had with clients of mine, if we have time. Um, but to answer your question, why is mental health so important? Because that's what gives consistency. Because uh, if a person has uh, personal struggles in their, let's say, real life, 
which of course spills over to the athletic life. It's kind of hard to put these things in boxes. Um, they have one good week and then something happens in their life and they have a bad week. Uh, they have a great performance. Another thing happens in their personal life. They have a crummy performance. So there's an up and down quality when the person themselves is not grounded. So that's kind of a starting point. And every person I work with, maybe not so much adults, even though I work with people from, believe it or not, as young as age six. I've had uh, like the uh, golfers and chess champions at age six, mainly work with the parents, all the way up to like 86. Um, so not so much with adults, but when, when I'm working with kids and teens and young adults, the first thing I do is I broaden the coaching. Hey coach, I've got a problem with slumping in my sport. We start talking about that in the, but in the first hour, I'm already saying, now this is going to help you. Well, tell me what are your, what are your goals in life? I want to do, what are you majoring in? What do you want to do? So you get to know who they are. And well, when you go to interview for a job, this will help you focus on an interview. Uh, when it helps you, you want to be a doctor and a surgeon? Well, you got to have mental toughness when you're a surgeon. So broaden it out that way in the rest of their lives so they realize that they already know the skills are important. But that gives another level of consistency where now they're going to hopefully apply that to their studies, their test taking, interviews, jobs, family, what have you. So it becomes like work-life sport balance overall. And then they get a consistency. And then one final thing. Um, talk about the growth mindset uh, compared to the performance mindset. So the coach just said to the athlete, maybe directly, no, I'm not gonna put you in the game because you had a lousy game last week. What have you done for me lately is kind of the coach ethic. So the trick is for the athlete to take the long view, you don't live and die on every game. Mm -hmm. I think that's very interesting that you kind of mentioned like the quote, what have you done for me lately? Cause I think as an athlete myself, that just puts so much pressure on the athlete and kind of makes you feel like you need to do so much and you completely forget about why you actually came to the program and what qualities you can bring because all of this overthinking causes you to just play just in such a timid way. Exactly, if I make it, gee, it's only been three minutes and I've made two mistakes. Oh man, I, I missed that shot. Uh, I missed this. I missed, oh. And they're looking over their shoulder. You know, coach have his arms crossed as he's scowling, whatever. And that gets into the player's head. And of course, kablooey. And we'll talk about uh, ways how that you can avoid that. But that's a regular common thing, uh, which maybe leads us into your next question, which is what causes the mental strain in sports? And that there it is right there, among others. Expectations of others. And uh, I kind of break it down. We're not just going to describe, you know, how things are or talk about theory. I'm going to give you techniques today of how people can manage this stuff. So here's one right here. I break, you know, in, in life, we talk about stress. In jobs, we talk about stress. In sports, we don't call it stress. We call it pressure. Mm -hmm. But it is stress. So, you know, there's two arenas of expectations slash pressure. And that would be, there are external expectations. Coach has them, your teammates, you don't wanna let them down. You wanna do well for your school, probably parents or relatives if they're in the picture, friends, um, you know. So there's that external set of people that you wanna uh, impress. Even if you're in high school going into college, a scout, et cetera, or younger, a scout to get on a better team. So uh, there's an external set of, of expectations, which is real pressure, they're facts, but the other, uh, domain of pressure is inside yourself. You have no control directly over the outside domain of those expectations. You have total control over the inside set of expectations from yourself. So there's three, oh, this is important to realize, there's three big buckets we work in of control. Probably most every sports psychologist in the planet talks about this in hour one, at least I hope they do. So number one is you have, uh, we already talked about the outside bucket of things that you have partial control over, like you can influence your coach if you have a really good practice and you're nice to the coach and you show enthusiasm and you're good team spirit and leadership, you just impress the coach favorably. You might get more playing time and a pass if you make a mistake. Those are the external things that you can have some control over. The 
real external bucket of zero control is the time of the game, the place of the game, the weather, the opponent, the uh, officials, da 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 da. All those things are 100% out of your control, so you have to let those go. Now we come to the most important bucket, which is the uh, bucket of total control, and that's you. So think of all the things you actually do control, even though when I list these up, people are thinking, I can't control those. And I say, not yet. But with training and practice and skills and tools, you can control these. So think of it, um, your training, your nutrition, hydration, stretching, fitness, all those things, sleep, rest, your schedule, time management. Now we get to the most important things. What's up in your mind? What are you thinking? What are you picturing? What are the movies? Your muscle tension, uh, your breathing, uh, often overlooked area of athletes, your behavior, your rituals. So those would be the main six things that are critical for any athlete wanting to perform better or get out of a slump or whatever to focus on the things they can control when they start to focus on things that are not in their control then they're feeling a lot more pressure mm -hmm. i mean i completely agree i think uh one of the biggest things that i try to live by is control the controllables because i have definitely been in situations where i feel stressed out over maybe playing time or just something that I can't control. And I kind of have to take a step back and realize, you know what, like I can control certain things and I can't control certain things. And the things that I can control, just try to kind of create a positive kind of mindset in a sense, in order to um, make the things that I can control better. Exactly. You can only control what you can control. If you can't, cannot control it, then what's the problem? You can't control it. Exactly. If you're continuing to work hard and just continuing to go out there and be the best that you can be, I think that's all that matters. And eventually the things that you can't control will come into place and work in your favor. Exactly. So maybe just to broaden this a bit, we're talking about sport, obviously, but uh, all these years I've applied this to other domains like helping people overcome fright of interviews stage fright when they do public speaking, work with salespeople, overcome call reluctance, rejection, um, career coaching with people that have a toxic boss, uh, work a lot with kids uh, to improve their relationship with their parents so the parents aren't on them so much. Same thing, improving coaches' performance, but the coaches never know we're working with the coach because we do it through the parents or the kid. So my, my corporate website is mentalgamecoach.com. My sports psychology website is sportspsychologycoaching.com and the IMGCA website is mentalgamecoaching.com. So your next question is, uh, what, what process do you use to help people overcome self-doubt, anxiety? So what I'm gonna do is read a very short list of names and I'm gonna have you guess what uh, these people have in common. Uh, you're probably pretty well known. Jason Alexander, the guy from uh, Seinfeld, Neil Armstrong, first man on the moon, David Bowie, Nicolas Cage, Jim Carrey, Cher, Kevin Costner, Tom Cruise, Johnny Depp, Bob Dylan, Thomas Edison, Albert Einstein, Gloria Estefan, Melissa Etheridge, Harrison Ford, Tom Hanks, Mia Hamm, George Harrison of the Beatles, John Lennon of the Beatles, Michael Jackson, uh, David Letterman, Alanis Morissette, John Cougar Mellencamp, he changes his name, uh, Brad Pitt, Elvis Presley, Julia Roberts, Barbara Streisand, Carly Simon, Rod Stewart, Britney Spears, John Stossel, Carrie Underwood, and Oprah Winfrey. I, I have over a hundred more. So what, what do you think they all have in common? Um, I mean, I think they're all very well-known people that everyone knows about, and they've probably gone out of their way to, and just done, gone the extra mile in order to get to where they are today. Totally true. And the thing for purposes of this discussion is they've all admitted to having overwhelming stage fright. Oh, okay. Interesting. Debilitating stage fright. But they did it anyhow. So this is a big message. Uh, this is a huge message that I use with everybody. Um, there's a book out there called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyhow by Susan Jeffers. Highly recommend the book. That's kind of the theme of how I operate with people at the beginning and all through the training. 
which is, you know, if you're, if you're doing anything of consequence, anything worthwhile, anything interesting, anything challenging, anything like great or big, you're going to have anxiety. There's only, I kind of joke, I say, you know, I, I did read last night a good article on how to immediately and permanently extinguish all your anxiety. I'm talking to someone who's like 17, 18 in their sport, only play against five-year-olds. You will never have any anxiety. And of course, they're chuckling at this point. Well, I don't want to, I want you to do that either, but will, will you be afraid playing five-year-olds? No. no. Would you want to do it? No. Why not? No challenge. So what comes with the territory of challenge or new things is uncertainty. It's just a given. You don't know if you can do it yet because you haven't done it. You're at a higher level. You're, you're pushing, you're achieving. So there is uncertainty. And some people unfortunately want certainty and they're uncomfortable with the uncertain. So that bothers them right there. But I've never done it before. Plenty of people have never done it like that list of names. Did they, at one point they were unknown. They hadn't done anything, but they kept moving and they had plenty of roadblocks, they kept going. Perfect example I'll give is when someone gives a speech or a presentation at school, you get up in front of the class, book report or a group project, and I ask people all the time, do you get nervous when you do those? Oh yeah. Have you ever given a, a, one of those presentations and, you, and while you're giving it, you know you're nervous, like you can feel you're nervous. And then you sit down and at the end of class, people come up to you, Jessica, you are so, uh, can you give me some tips on, and before you know it, they're. Like you go, what? They didn't know I was nervous? Well, this is the nature of it where people can not know you're nervous. You can know you're nervous, but you cover it up, you ignore it. You apply concentration techniques, which we'll talk about in a minute to bypass the anxiety. But you know, as an athlete uh, pre-game, if you're hanging around the locker room or the bus or the warm-up field and you're all kind of uh, wired up and you know getting spun up about the game appropriately, and you look at a teammate and they're about to take a nap and they're all blasé, I think you'd be worried about that blasé teammate because they're not getting up for the game. Mm -hmm. But they have no stress. They have no anxiety. You're the one with the anxiety. So anxiety is required, you know, give it different names, it's required to a certain level to perform. If you don't have it, you won't perform. If you have too much, you won't perform well. So. I always tell everybody our goal is not to extinguish your anxiety, but to manage it, to get it to the right level. Then you know you're going to be ready to perform. It's kind of like, uh, gee, you know, a cup of coffee makes you alert. It makes you a little wiry too, but you're alert. And if you don't have it, maybe you don't have that mental acuity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think obviously it's very important. You, when you talked about, um, the things with stage fright. Um, obviously, you have to get out of your comfort zone in order to push yourself to do it. And obviously, the level of uncertainty scares a lot of people. And that relates to soccer as well. But once you do it, and you kind of get the hang of things, you're like, wait, this isn't that scary. And I'm actually fully capable of doing this. And I think that's what makes people like Oprah Winfrey or Mia Hamm in soccer so successful exactly in fact glad you brought up mia ham because i was going to mention her i don't have the quote in front of me but she has quite a few good quotes out there and one i'll paraphrase it one of them is um to the effect of the next time you're feeling stress when you compete just think of that little girl who used to love soccer and be that little girl it's a total paraphrase but you get the idea like Go, go to the love of your sport. So people always ask me, you're going to give me some stress reduction techniques, right? Yes, I will. I'm also going to give you some sport love techniques where I'm going to get you to love your sport more and be more passionate about it. And guess what? If you love your sport more and you love to compete more and you have that spirit of adventure and you love the challenge and you have good fighting spirit and all that, you will have mental toughness and then you don't need as much stress management skills. So mm -hmm. I say go towards the light. That's the love and excitement of what you're doing. And as you go towards the light, you'll go away from the darkness. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. I feel like um, I've always tried to reiterate this in my recent podcast, um, kind of trying to tell my viewers, like, if you are feeling like you're in a dark place with soccer, you have to always remind yourself why you're there. You're a great player. First of all, you didn't get recruited because 
you weren't good. You got recruited because they thought that you would be a great asset to the team. And you also have to remind yourself why you're there. You grew up playing soccer. You love the game. And this also relates to other sports too. But um, yeah, just trying to keep a positive mindset and remind yourself why you decided to play the sport and continue it at either the professional level or the college level. Very true. And a common comment I'll get from athletes is uh, my coach just doesn't understand me. My coach doesn't like me. My coach doesn't respect me. How can I play for someone like that? Uh, and I say, well, are you going to let someone like that stop you? Are you going to let someone like that, you know, put a roadblock in your career? You don't have to play for the coach. Uh, you can play for your school, but mainly play for yourself. Play for the school if you like that. Play for your teammates. If you like the coach, play for the coach. But if the coach doesn't like you, then just kind of cut them out of the equation and play for the other people. And you're unfortunately, you know, the coach is there. You're there. Uh, the coach is not going to be with you forever. Uh, whether you're in travel soccer or college, they're going to go away eventually. So it's an unfortunate situation, but it is what it is. Play for yourself. Don't let anybody block you from your opportunity and your greatness. Mm -hmm. A thousand percent. Um, so moving on, um, just talking about overcoming these things of stress or anxiety. Once you feel like obviously they've overcome these mental blocks, what are the steps needed in order to maintain a level of consistency in both practice and games? How do you train your clients mental health in order to achieve a positive mindset every day they show up onto the field? Mm -hmm. Very broad question, but it all starts with uh, having a commitment to a personal standard. That's where the whole starting point is. Gee, I'm up and down. Uh, uh, tell me about your down days. I didn't feel like it. Gee, uh, when was the last time you went to a doctor who walked in the exam room and said, I'm having kind of a bad day today, but let me examine you. Uh, never will happen, I hope. Now, are they having a bad day, a doctor? Yeah, but here's my definition of a professional. And you can apply it to sports. A professional is someone who, when they're having a bad day, no one can tell. That's a pro. Uh, they wake up tired, sore, jet lagged, whatever, whatever, whatever. You keep going on the whatevers. But the personal standard makes them rise above all that okay, this is what I'm going to put out today in practice. I'm not going below that standard ever. Now, this is an interesting little nuance. The standard would be effort, professionalism, sportsmanship, focus, work ethic, listening, communicate, all those things that are controllable by the athlete. But you notice I didn't say, I'm going to play my best every day. That's a different animal. You can go to your standard every day, which is the things we just said that you can control, but no one can go to their best every day. Here's the distinction. Uh, a parent will say, I, I got a big game today. Go, go up there and play your best. I would like to. Uh, you can't always play your best because you know there's the bell-shaped curve in there. Uh, very few people play their best all the time. There's dips and stuff, but you can always give it your best effort. So that's what a professional does is they have a commitment to their minimum standard and maybe more than that, but minimum, they, they don't let themselves go below that standard. That's the starting point for consistency. The second piece of the equation is they apply devices or tools or techniques to help them uh, kind of bridge the gap from their minimum standard to their best selves. So gee, I'm not concentrating today and uh, we can do an exercise right now briefly if you want to try it. Have you heard of a technique called look and listen? Uh, no, I haven't. All right, so let's do it right now. So I'll describe the purpose of it at the end, but uh, all you have to do is uh, look around your office or wherever you're situated. I'll do it first. And uh, kind of at a casual tempo, you're going to look at something and you're going to do yours in your mind. I'll do mine out loud so the listeners can hear. All you're going to do is name or label that thing. So I'll, I'll go first because you want to get the tempo. Um, cell phone, paper clips, hard drive, mouse, keyboard, pen, magic marker, adapter, extension cord, et cetera. So you hear the tempo, you're just looking, you're labeling, you keep moving. Go ahead and do that uh, for 10, 15, 20 seconds. 
So that's probably enough to get the effect. So Jessica, aside from you looking and there's a word or a phrase or whatever in your head, um, was your mind relatively quiet? Yeah. And that's how it works. So that's an example of something an athlete could use pre-practice to clear the mind out uh, right on the pitch on a timeout or before the ball goes into play. And we did it for, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds. All you need is five seconds. It's covert. No one knows you're doing it. Obviously, you're just looking. You, know, you look normal. And the way it works is a couple ways. Uh, the objects you're looking at are in the here and now. So there's three time zones. We have the past, the present, the future. And we play good soccer. We're talking about soccer today in the present. And uh, the past is a place that people go to, unfortunately, um, in a negative way when they are lamenting or they're angry or they're kicking themselves or they're, uh, they're you know, something is wrong that they did. So they're in the past. And people go in the future when they have the fears and the what ifs. Uh, don't, don't mess that up. You're going to get, uh, you're going to be in the bench, et cetera. So basically when people do the past and the future, and you can see my fingers moving in the different time zones, that's called time travel. That confuses the mind, busies the mind. And now back to the look and label. Look and lay. I didn't say to you, if you recall, now keep your focus. Don't be distracted. Uh, don't let your mind wander. Keep your mind quiet. Didn't say that once, but your mind exactly did all of that only by doing the look and the label. And the other way it works is there's a kind of a, a cadence or a musical quality to it. Plus you, the negative or the anxious thoughts you might have don't have a space to get in because you're keeping your conscious mind busy. Your unconscious mind is just sort of relaxing. So look and label is a typical example of how do I, but how do I clear my mind? That's one example. Mm -hmm. What about prior to a game or a practice you mentioned like kind of during a throw-in or during a game you kind of do the the labeling exercise can you do that before practice how do you think an athlete can achieve pre-game confidence right so a lot of different ways uh, and it's customized to the athlete it ranges from um, relaxed relaxation training centering mindfulness uh, breathing exercises visualization uh, reading over their soccer resume. This one is like, some of these things are really simple and they seem uh, hokey, but they do work. I asked athletes, do you have, a, do you have your soccer resume? No, my, I guess my mom does, I think. I think you should read that like every week, uh, five times a week, right before you go to practice. Why? It'll boost your confidence. Can you tell me three things, uh, three highlights in your career? Well, I'm not that good, but here's two things I don't do too well. And you, you won't believe how often I get a negative from asking a positive. What, what are three highlights in your career? Well, here's three ways I messed up. So you hear that negative mindset the person has. If they make their soccer resume of the highlights and the good stuff, and you read that every day before a practice in a game, you're reading good stuff. And I'm gonna give you my definition of confidence. Uh, give you two definitions. Confidence does not come from stuff you've done before poorly. Confidence does not come from what you're going to do, even as good as it could be, because it's not real. Confidence really only comes from what you've done already good. So there's the definition of confidence. I'll give you actually two more quick ones. Confidence comes from competence. If you know what you're doing, you're going to feel pretty good about yourself. But if you don't know what you're doing, your skills aren't so sharp, you can't fool yourself. And the third one on confidence, not really a definition, but it's a, a process. So this is another way athletes become confident. This is called the confidence bank account. So let's say you open a real bank account down at Wells Fargo or something, and you put in $100 to open it up. And every week uh, you put in another $100, you're going to have a pretty good amount of money at the end of the month. But unfortunately, every other week you go down there also and you take out $200. I think you can see the numbers will eventually not add up too well, because even though you're putting stuff in your account, you're taking a lot out. Mm -hmm. Now, fast forward that over to sport. Can you tell me three things that uh, you're good at as an athlete? I'm fast, I'm strong, and I'm uh, smart. And what are some of your weaknesses? And they give me 20 weaknesses. So now the weaknesses or the deficits or the problems overwhelm the strengths, just like the bank account, and their bank account quickly becomes empty, so they have no confidence. 
So the trick is when you think these things or say these things, think primarily positive thoughts about yourself to build up your positive bank account of confidence. Does everybody know what they need to work on? Everybody. I mean, coaches are telling you, you know what they are. You don't have to remind yourself. The thing you've got to remind yourself of is how you're good and your strengths. And then your confidence bank account rises. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I agree. I feel like positive affirmations are always really important when building up your confidence. You mentioned the resume. I've personally never done that before, but I probably will um, after this podcast interview. Um, and I've also been very guilty of someone asking me a positive question on what I'm good at. And I like struggle to think of things I'm good at because all I can think about are negatives, which is, I think, a huge issue among all athletes, like you just said. Um, so positive affirmations and just setting little small goals for yourself and knowing that you're a great player goes a long way for sure. Exactly. And maybe to piggyback on that, um, clearly confidence is the coin of the realm when it comes to athletics. Everybody wants it. Um, but I'll give you a couple uh, maybe unusual perspectives on it. Um, when people compliment you, whoever we're speaking to here, you need to be good at accepting a compliment. You need to believe the compliment because uh, a lot of athletes will put up their Teflon shield and they'll deflect the, the compliment never gets into the athlete's head or, or heart. And now how does that build yourself up with confidence? It really doesn't. So you have to get good at not minimizing or deflecting uh, compliments. Um, your next question is interesting. Stress is inevitable when it comes to sports. How do you help athletes manage that? There's a quote I use all the time. It's not my quote. In life, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. So life is full of pain. But those are like, you know, you bump yourself. There's roadblocks. There's challenges. There's uh, adversity. There's setbacks. That's the pain. But you have a choice over how you view and manage those things. And if you, if when people do not view them correctly, uh, that causes the suffering. So we talked about the growth mindset. Uh, a lot of athletes want success now or tomorrow. I got to have it quickly. Urgency is a killer of performance. Urgency is a killer of learning. So you don't want to have an. But my coach wants me to. That's your coach, but you got to do what you have to do. Uh, if what your coach wants doesn't work for you, and you're you're last on your coach's schedule, you're gonna be tight and rushed and unfocused. You've gotta be your own person, even though, yeah, you've got a coach or a coaching staff on you, you've gotta be your own person. So that's why we keep coming back to the, that control bucket. You can only control you and your reactions to, in fact, let me change that word, your responses to what occurs. One more thing about response versus reaction. Mm -hmm. um, this is actually a big thing when it comes to uh, handling the stress. Uh, that coach irritates me. Oh, she really ticks me off. Oh, he, he really embarrasses me. And we could keep going, but you notice I'm pointing the finger over there at the people. And there's an old expression, when you point your finger at someone else, there's three others pointing back at you. The situation doesn't make us afraid. It's our view of the situation. And now we come back to the reaction versus the response. If someone believes that that coach scares them or the situation is too much and it's intimidating to them, or this other person is a bully to them, whatever, intimidates them, they're gonna be reactive to that person or situation. Uh, let's call it a knee-jerk reaction. However, if the person thinks about it more and they put a buffer in between the trigger and them, the buffer would be, what we already did here with a coach. Gee, that coach really rides me like crazy. You know, it's so negative. I'm not going to let the coach do that to me. I'm not going to say anything to coach. I have no control over him or her, but I can control my reaction or my response. So I'm not going to be embarrassed or angry. I'm just going to bypass that coach and I'm going to be my own person and I'm going to be calm and focused. And that's going to be my deal. So now I'm responding, not reacting because you put a buffer in there, which is wise, and now you avoided the suffering. So that, that's an important little formula to know. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, just from personal experience, I've dealt with adversity throughout my career and it's always important to kind of look at adversity as an opportunity rather than a letdown and to kind of build off of it and be like, I'm only growing from this. It's just, even though it's a roadblock, it's a roadblock necessary in order for me to reach my goals. Exactly. Now, sometimes I'll ask people, I'll ask you, um, if I arranged for us to go out to the airport and go up in a, a small plane and jump out with a parachute, would you, would you like to parachute? Maybe that could be a possibility. <laughs> there you go. So I have a, a great number of people that, oh, no way. And I have a lot of people, oh, when? So there's the three responses, bring it on, maybe, or forget it. <laughs> so that's an important question of how that person views adventure or risk taking. We're not saying they should go in an airport. That's not the point. The point is then I'll ask, and so overall, are you kind of a risk taker in life, like an adventurer? Are you kind of in the middle or do you like to play things really safe? And that's a very interesting response you get from people. Quite a few people will be honest. I kind of like to play it safe. Then because you're in a sport, maybe you need to change that outlook on life. Mm -hmm. Because sport is not about being safe. Sport is about taking risk. And you have to have that risk-taking, risk-reward, adventuresome spirit. Let's go for it. I can handle uncertainty. I'm comfortable being uncomfortable, as you mentioned. There's the attitude, and I'll throw this out. There's no such thing as an intake on life. Life doesn't give stuff to you. We have an outlook on life because we get to choose how we view life. So that's our personal outlook. Mm -hmm. Positive, negative, scary, exciting, your choice. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting that you say that about taking risks though, because I think over the past year, actually, I've kind of had to have a discussion with myself and I've also talked to like my trainers about this and they're like, you're not going to succeed unless you take risks. I feel like playing it safe is only going to cause you to fail. You, yeah, you can make mistakes while taking risks, but that's going to be inevitable in every situation that you're in. Um, but if you're taking risks, you have the opportunity to reach your peak performance or just something higher other than staying at a stagnant place of just playing safe your whole career. Exactly. And, you know, it's kind of amazing when you see these uh, high level athletes that have really succeeded, uh, huge amount of risks, huge amount of willing to fall flat on their face. If you ask them, and they've been asked by the media plenty of times, um, tell me the times you failed. And they say, how much time have you, have you got? So lots of failing to get to succeeding. There's no, and this is a big thing that let's say younger athletes have a problem with. They want to succeed right away. They think failure is awful. Um, and that's a message maybe from the parents uh, in a lot of ways. They, they want that success instantly. But you have to be, you know, think of it like this. Sometimes I'll ask people, if you were in the school, have you ever been on the school play? They say, yeah. Were you like in the chorus or the background or the star? Oh, I would never want to be the star. Now we have a discussion about not wanting to be the star. You want to, you, you'd like to be the star because you want the spotlight on you because that means you're comfortable with eyeballs on you and you're comfortable if you fail, it's not the end of the world. So when people immediately tell, I would never want to be the, you know, well, that's something we'll talk about because you're afraid of having people look at you, you're worried about failing, you're too safe, you might count your mistakes out there, all that stuff. So that whole relationship with failure, success, growth is just integral to the anxiety the person has and how they manage it, and then ultimately how they perform. Mm -hmm. Well, what about like outside of practicing games? Obviously, from my personal experience, I've struggled with overthinking, leading to emotional breakdowns and being sent to a dark place. So what do you recommend for an athlete to control those feelings? A couple pretty straightforward things. One is to have a success uh, log or a success journal or success notebook. So you finish the day, a game or practice, and you come home and you sit down and you pull it out on the computer or it's a real notebook and in one minute's time you write answers to these questions what did i enjoy today about soccer what did i learn new today about soccer could be a skill 
technique, strategy, you know, some tidbit, even a teammate gave you whatever. What, I, what did I uh, improve today? And then what uh, was I grateful for today? So there's your four questions, improve, learn new, gratitude, enjoy. If you do that every day, that's all positive stuff, obviously. And if you do it every day, at the end of the week, how many every you know days you're out there in soccer, you get five, six, seven entries over the course of a month, a, a quarter, et cetera. And now the next time you're doubting yourself, you pull your journal out, and you, or even before every practice or game, you start reading. You know, I've improved more than I really remembered. Boy, I've learned more than I really remember. Because when people see it in black and white, it's real. And when people just try to remember it, which most people don't even try to remember it, they don't think of it that way. It just one day goes into the next. Uh, they can't remember what they learned or improved or why they're grateful or what they enjoyed. They just can't, can't say it. So this little simple exercise makes it tangible of those four elements. And the whole thing probably takes one or two minutes a day that you get a big uh, payoff uh, from it. So that, that would just be one, one example of, and it does build your confidence, builds your appreciation. Gratitude, we didn't talk about that, but gratitude is a huge piece of uh, being a consistent athlete. If you're grateful for what you've got, and I'll give you a very specific uh, pressure technique about that. If you're grateful for what you've got and where you are and where you're going, that covers up a lot of failure, or let's say manages a lot of failure, a lot of setback. So I tell people this, I get on a Zoom call with somebody and they say, oh, tomorrow I've got a really big game. I'm really, really worried about it. It's the finals of the CCS or the state championship or the this or that. And our, our team's in the finals. And I say, wow, that's a real privilege. That's a real honor. Aren't you lucky? And they kind of look at me a little sideways say you ever hear the, the book uh, or the phrase pressure is a privilege so there's a great little phrase next time you are in the finals and you're feeling nervous think to yourself all the other teams or people who are not in the finals at home watching you on tv and they want to be you right now but they're not because they're at home because they didn't win so you're in a position which they want to have desperately so you ideally would be grateful for that and look at it as a privilege and to use your phrase again, a great opportunity, no guarantees, but what an opportunity. So glad to be here. There's no other place I'd rather be. There's the gratefulness that cuts through pressure like a knife. Because mm -hmm. now you want to be there instead of, oh, I have to be there or I don't want to be there. Yeah, uh, honestly, I've never really looked at, obviously I'm very thankful for my sport, but I've never, gone into depth about what I'm grateful for every day and just my overall game. And that's definitely something that I should consider looking into um, because like you said, pressure is something that you should be thankful for because I think a ton of people would love the opportunity to play for a college program, so. Sometimes I ask people, uh, where's one of your favorite places to take a hike oh the mountains the beach the here the there and are, are you all stressed out when you're walking on the beach oh never and why not because it's nice and you want to be there so if you realize that when you're at practice or a game that you want to be there and this is your sport and you love your sport and you would do nothing else other than this is like perfect moment so now that cuts through the stress and the pressure as well just the gratitude attitude very very big thing Mm -hmm. So just reflecting off of sports as a whole, what do you think the ratio is between the mental and physical components of success in sports? I've heard the philosophy that sport is 10% physical and 90% mental. What do you think your thoughts are on that? It's a commonly asked question. I think it's uh, really difficult to measure such a thing, but I have a little, little answer. When, when you're starting out in your sport or you're a beginner, you have no game. So you don't need much of a mental game. What you need is physical skills. So probably there it's 90% physical and tactical and understand the game and learn the rules and 10% mental, as long as you can learn. So there's like a learning mentality, if you will. As you move up the ladder, uh, everybody is like 
not the same athlete, but pretty close in terms of capabilities. They're elite. They're smart. They have the skills. Now, what's the di differentiating factor? The mental. But let's, uh, I'll tell you, the, I'll, I'll kind of morph the question a little bit. What, what is the difference among the top athletes in any sport, if you want to take it to that extreme? Yeah. The will to win, the love of their sport, and the ability to handle setbacks and adversity over a career. That's, to my mind, the thing that separates. So they have that fighting spirit, and what goes with that is mental toughness, enthusiasm, passion, the love for the sport, and all of that helps them bounce back and that's what gives it consistency. So that's what separates the very upper crust. They have such an incredible love for the sport. You just can't get them away from it. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, you've, from your experience, you've coached high caliber athletes who were associated with events like the Baseball College World Series, Wimbledon, the U.S. Open Tennis Championships, and the Davis Cup. Do you typically approach professional athletes the same as a college or high school athlete? Uh, I think the approach is different because the elite athlete knows more. So I, even with a lower level athlete, I always start from a place of respect and um, inquisitiveness. I want them to tell me about their sport, what do they know about the mental, ask about the coaching. So get them talking and then I'll listen to what they have to say and find places of entry to help them with what they need on their mental approach that I've figured out on an assessment that they take on my website. So that would be with anybody, but the difference on the higher level people, uh, in fact, maybe here's a good way to put it. The, all the stuff we're talking about here could apply to any level and all the techniques I teach could apply to any level, but the approach would be a little bit different with higher level people because they know more. So you're not teaching them the basics. Uh, you're teaching them more advanced stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, being a mental game trainer for thousands of athletes, coaches, and parents, like I mentioned in the introduction, do you feel like you've learned from your clients and kind of altered your practice based on the client experiences you've had? Right, every single day. So I'm learning from people all the time. Uh, I'm a pretty humble person. And I think that comes across when I ask people about things and I'm curious, tell me about this, tell me about that, and I listen. And that you know does help the rapport and the connection with the athlete. But as they're talking, I'm learning a tremendous amount of things. I've done this in over 110 sports now at this point. I've never played all the 110 sports. I've seen them on YouTube. I've kind of figured them out, the mental component in order to help the person. And like I said, uh, all the stuff I teach transfers to all these different sports and domains. Um, but I'm learning all the time when new sports come in. Recently, I worked with uh, one of the top um, uh, disc golf professionals in the world. You know, Frisbee, they don't call it Frisbee, but Frisbee golf and very arcane, unusual sports. I'm learning all about that. When I learn stuff about that, I can apply that to the other sports. Mm -hmm. Well, what about your experience as a two sport athlete and pro tennis player? How has your experience as an athlete influenced how you've approached your practice? I think probably the biggest way is, is empathy. Like me knowing what they're going through. And I really don't tell like war stories of mine or let me tell you how it was when I was an athlete much, but I, they can tell I understand what they're going through. And I will tell a few stories here and there, mainly of failures. Uh, and I think people are really interested in hearing about failures more than success because you can learn a lot from that. And I learned a lot from those. So I'll willingly share when I goofed up and things didn't go well and I had to bounce back and people are curious about those. So I think that's probably the major way. The other one would be obviously credibility when I work with someone that, uh, you know, a higher level. Mm -hmm, definitely. I feel like that's a lot of times sets sports psychologists apart when they actually have experience in the sport and have kind of ex like dealt with things that us athletes now have are going through. Exactly. And then moving on, just I understand I mentioned in the introduction that you are the founder and president of the International Mental Game Coaching Association. How has that had an impact on your career? Right. So that's something I've been doing for over a decade now. And um, let's say formally, you know, at mentalgamecoaching.com, where it's a membership organization and also a training organization where you certify people. But I've been um, 
coaching coaches and teaching teachers and mentoring uh, teachers for as far back as I can remember. Uh, always enjoyed doing that, you know, speaking at conferences or whatever. So like training the next uh, group of coaches, if you will, mentally. So I've really enjoyed that. And um, I've learned a lot from the people that come to me. I've had people that for certification, coaches, obviously, psychiatrists, physicians, counselors, therapists, physical therapists, uh, parents. I've had parents take the courses. So learn a lot from everybody. Mm -hmm. I like how you say that because not only are you teaching us stuff, but you're also constantly learning through the different people that you meet, whether it be your clients or through your International Mental Game Coaching Association. Exactly. And then my last question for you, just to end things, is looking back on your career and what you've accomplished thus far, what have you enjoyed most about it? Uh, I think in a word, the people. It's got to be the people. So people always ask me, wow, Bill, you know, you, uh, you've been in this field a long time. You were the first person in the world to get a an actual degree in sports psychology. And that was 1978. Okay. So um, aren't you tired of the field? I, I, I'm not saying you're burnt out, but aren't you tired? Isn't it routine? The same thing over and over again? Um, no, because every person in front of me is different and unique, special. They bring something brand new each time. So I never get tired of it. I'm always learning. Like I mentioned, I'm always growing, reading books, uh, I'm on my own journey to keep getting better and more knowledgeable. So it never gets old. Never. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great to hear. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on my show today. I really appreciate all the insights and knowledge you gave to me and my viewers. Jessica has been my pleasure and I really enjoyed speaking with you and hopefully our, our viewers got some uh, little tidbits they can use to help them in their career. Yeah. A hundred percent. Thank you again. For any listeners out there, thank you so much for tuning in today. If you want to tune in next week, the podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Music, and of course, Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V. And if you'd like to know more information about Bill Cole and his practice, head to MentalGameCoaching.com, MentalGameCoach.com, and SportsPsychologyCoaching.com. Thanks for kicking it with me on the Women's College Soccer Podcast. See you next week. Yeah, let me show you how we kicking it. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.